Welcome to another NPC episode of It's All Relative. Anyone for whom this is your first NPC, let me briefly explain. In the computer gaming world, an NPC is a non-playing character in a game. Non-playing characters range in importance from just filler, sort of like being in the crowd or the chorus and acting, to being a key contact point in the game. The crux of an NPC is that they are programmed to fill the role they play in the game, and that's it. They will only act or react based on that very basic programming. Because of this, gamers often take time out of actually playing the game to abuse an NPC. Why? That is a deep philosophical question, which you can spend all the time you want delving into. Look it up. NPC episodes are about people who have been treated like an NPC in their own life. Honestly, I debated whether to do this case as a regular episode or an NPC. The case is mostly solved, and I did originally say that all NPCs would be unsolved. I don't feel there is enough information on the victim's family for the case to count as a regular episode. But regardless, I'm doing it, so call it whatever you want. Wee-woo, wee-woo, warning, warning. IAR is a true crime podcast. Don't be shocked when gruesome subjects come up. Picture very firm blinking directed at you now. I am your host, Kaylee. Queen will set the mood, and I'll see you on the other side. I'm just a Today's story is that of Danny Hansford, whose death was made famous by a book by John Barrent, and then a movie produced by Clint Eastwood, both called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Both book and movie tell the story of Savannah, Georgia around the time of Danny's death in 1981, and the subsequent trials of Jim Williams, who was Danny's killer. The movie focuses more on the murder and the trials, while the book goes much, much further into many of the citizens of Savannah, and the case is maybe one half of the total page count. Maybe. While it is Danny Hansford whose life was taken, both the movie and the book gave relatively few details about Danny. There are two more recent books about the case, Lawyer Games, After Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by Deb Kirkland, and After Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by Marion Bardsley. You may notice that no one has been very original in their naming patterns. Depp Kirkland was a prosecutor in Savannah, and was at the scene of Danny's death shortly after the police got there. Bardsley is a true crime author and editor. Neither author puts much work into elucidating Danny Hansford, as one would hope. Kirkland overtly presents a narrative that Danny was just trying to survive after surviving a broken home and 
only one parent, and most of his efforts are put into clarifying points he, Kirkland, felt were at issue in the court case. BT-dubs, the case was tried four times. Bardsley puts a bit more effort into Danny's background. She doesn't shy away from the violence in his nature, and unlike Kirkland, she doesn't blame Danny's mother for not being able to parent her son. For Bardsley, however, her interest lies in Jim Williams, so her investigation into Danny is directed more towards how Danny fit into and affected Williams' life. But, even from the minimal amount of detail given about Danny Hansford, he poses a complicated and interesting character. I think victimology is a huge part of the circumstances of his death, and ignoring the victim in all of this did both Jim Williams and Danny Hansford a disservice. So let's look at what we do have about Danny. Born March 1, 1960 in Savannah, Georgia, Danny Hansford was the third child, all boys, in a marriage that ended about a year after his birth. Danny's father remarried and moved away. Danny's mother, Emily, had married Danny's father at age 15. She would marry, then divorce, two more times before having a nervous breakdown in the early 1970s. Danny's father committed suicide. Kirkland has the date at 1967 and Bardsley lists the year as 1969. Not to be cliche, but just that one paragraph shows that Danny had a difficult childhood. From the accounts given by locals and from the court testimony, it is clear that Danny Hansford was a very troubled individual. He certainly had both the potential biological inheritance and the childhood experience to produce a person with some sort of conduct disorder. In the 1970s, Danny and his brothers spent considerable lengths of time in the Bethesda Home for Boys, just outside of Savannah. Bethesda had been created for orphan boys in the late 18th century, but by Danny's childhood, the home would also take in troubled boys or other male children whose parents just couldn't cope. Records do not exist for anyone at Bethesda from that time period. The home was originally founded on Calvinist principles, but it is unclear what kind of atmosphere Bethesda had when the Hansford boys were in residence. We do know that Danny missed quite a bit of school, and his grades were terrible. Except art. He got an A in art. Between the bad grades and the absences, Danny was held back a grade on two different occasions. Danny spent his time selling himself in exchange for drugs and alcohol. At age 15, Emily asked the county to take Danny because he was out of control. The court ordered him to live at Gould Cottage, another home for boys. Kirkland says that it was Emily who didn't like the rules at Gould and pulled him out. Bardsley says it was Danny who didn't like the rules and Danny who went AWOL, stopping with his mother for a couple of days before disappearing into the ether. Neither author provides references for these claims. However, Kirkland does provide footnotes for much of his book, just not his biography of Danny. Read into that what you will. Marilyn Bardsley only provides sources at the end of her book, but she does spend quite a bit of time in Savannah actually talking to people who knew both Williams and Hansford, along with her hard copy research. When a pistol goes missing from his mother's bedroom, she goes to the court again. This time, Danny is arrested and sent to juvie for a few weeks. Within two weeks of Danny being released on probation, he's back in court for beating his sister. 
This time, Danny is sentenced to treatment. Kirkland says that Danny does not go because Emily refused to take him. Bardsley says Danny doesn't go because Emily is unable to consistently transport him to the sessions due to her work schedule. Regardless of which it is, this is yet another example of the court system being shit. Why did the court not arrange for him to have transportation? They could have remanded him back to juvie and then ensure he attended his treatment sessions. Instead, December, Danny has fucked up his hands by ripping the door of his room off of its hinges. Emily took him to the ER. While at the ER, a doctor convinced Emily to send Danny to a psychiatric hospital for a full evaluation. There, he received a preliminary diagnosis of unsocialized aggressive behavior with emotional instability in a personality disorder. The doctors wanted him to stay. Danny did not want to do that, and Emily didn't agree to forcible confinement. Why, Emily, why? Every couple of months for the next two years, Danny would be back in court being told to go to school or get a job. Instead, he would hit the streets until the police would find him and lock him up in juvie. The judge finally determined Danny needed to go to reform school and would be held in the county jail until he could be transferred. Can someone tell me how this did not happen? Or maybe it did and Danny just ran away from the reform school. Somehow, he was able to physically threaten his mother and sister just five months later, which had his mother back in court asking that he be stopped. A month and a half after that, Danny was arrested for criminal conspiracy to burgle a drugstore. One month after that, Danny joined the Air Force Reserves. He enrolled in a course to learn aircraft maintenance, but he never finished. Within five months, he was discharged for conduct unbecoming. In July, he had stolen the battery and a tire off of his mother's car. Just one tire. When he came back to Savannah after his military discharge, he did not return to his mother's house, and he did not return to the streets, or at least not to sleep. He was still using sex work to get money and drugs, but he did get his own apartment, and he apparently had a cat. Danny, however, was not a great tenant. He beat up his landlord for not stopping his neighbor from making noise. He also destroyed a lamppost and made a dog's breakfast of the landlord's car. The landlord was able to use a banister to beat Danny into submission. Danny was under arrest and taken to the hospital to treat his wounds. The hospital sent him back to Georgia Regional Psychiatric for emergency mental evaluation. He was evaluated as being homicidal and acutely psychotic. He had to be tied down to stop him hurting people, including himself. The next day, he claimed to not understand why he was there and demanded to be released. To be fair about this, I need to give you Kirkland's take of Danny's interaction with his landlord. Quote, Dr. Oral Todorescu was a physician originally from Bulgaria. He had no specialty and was not a psychiatrist. Dr. Todorescu was on duty when Danny Hansford was admitted to Georgia Regional on a referral from Memorial Medical Center on June 30, 1979. Danny was apparently intoxicated and had come from Memorial, where he had received two sets of sutures for injuries suffered in an argument with his landlord, during which Danny said the landlord had hit him multiple times with some sort of a stick. Danny was upset and didn't know why he had been taken to Georgia Regional. Tedescu testified, 
It was not so important the diagnosis at the time, when it was an emergency, psychiatric emergency, and it doesn't matter if it's psychosis or not. The patient had to be subdued and he had to be medicated. I place also an order for seclusion order in case it was necessary to seclude the patient, because this could be dangerous toward the staff and also dangerous for himself. The assault on Hansford continued with Nina A. Kelly, retired nurse, also testifying about the 1979 Georgia Regional Admission. Ms. Kelly testified she had been a nurse at Georgia Regional when Danny was admitted. She had been the first person to interact with him, even before Dr. Teodorescu. Ms. Kelly was a nurse, also not a psychiatrist. Cook asked her what box she had checked on the intake form in 1979. She responded, as he knew she would, homicidal. She had barely laid eyes on Danny and had no qualifications to render a psychiatric diagnosis, but checked the box and Danny Hansford became officially homicidal. Evidence like this is fraught with problems. How did homicidal get into an official medical record? After all, Danny was the one with the injuries. Ms. Kelly explained, what memorial sends is what we go by. Here's the sequence. Danny's landlord claimed Danny threatened him. That allegation went in the police report, and the officer gave that information to Memorial Hospital. Memorial sutured Danny up and, because he was unruly and extremely intoxicated, referred him to Georgia Regional. Dr. Teodorescu had testified that, according to the report of the police officer, he broke furniture and also he threatened to kill somebody. Nina Kelly saw this information consisting of layers of hearsay and checked homicidal on a form. The form then came into court as an official hospital record and presto, we had a homicidal Danny Hansford. This is no more than an authentication of hearsay through an official record exception to the hearsay rule, much like laundering dirty money, end quote. Basically, Kirkland is saying, that there is a procedure at the hospital put in place to protect everyone, especially the hospital, and that procedure meant assuming the worst until proved otherwise. He is also saying that the medical professionals who classified Danny as being in a homicidal psychosis were allegedly not qualified to give him a psychiatric diagnosis, and their testimony isn't worth the lips forming the words. I mean, maybe he has a point. But what is not probed into here is what qualifications the doctor and nurse do have. Both may be general practitioners in their original training, but both do work at a mental hospital in the emergency intake department. And if they have done those jobs for any length of time, they have to have some qualifications in order to perform their jobs. No. Also, it is not as if this is the only instance of Danny getting violent, out of control, psychotic. Whatever word you want to use, we have many people who have seen him in these Mr. Hyde moments, and it is not just this one incident. After his move into the apartment, Danny seemed to move on from harassing his biological family. He delighted in provoking his girlfriend's roommate calling her fat, destroying her things. He attacked the man who sprayed his apartment building for pests because the spray was bad for his cat. And before you jump to his defense, the entire building had been warned well in advance 
the pest control guy did Danny's floor last and knocked on his door several times to ensure no one was there when he sprayed. Danny forced his girlfriend, Debbie, out of his car and made her find her own way home after she told him he was too off his head and needed to stop using drugs so much. This is not a mentally healthy individual. Now, Bardsley says that late spring, early summer 1979, Danny rode up to Jim Williams on a bike and at work. The way she includes this in the book makes this vignette a bit odd. Up to this point, she details all of Danny's problems with his mother, his times in and out of jail, the mental hospital, and court. She flat out says he doesn't want to get a job and preferred to trade sex for everything he needed. And then there is this, quote from Bardsley. Sometime in late spring or early summer, Danny rode up to Mercer House on a bike and stopped Jim Williams as he was getting out of his car with his psychologist friend, Dr. Lance Hamburger. Danny was looking for work. Jim hired him as a part-time employee to strip the finishes and upholstery from furniture and to help clean and repair two huge crystal chandeliers that had been damaged in transit from New York to Savannah. Danny worked part-time on and off through 1979, end quote. And then Bardsley moves on to his relationship with Debbie. It's just such a non sequitur. Danny's actions are not the only sus thing here. The fact that Jim just says, sure, I'll hire you to a young man he had supposedly just met, and that Jim conveniently is with a very respectable doctor who acts as a witness. I'd say the whole thing is sus. Now, John Barrent also includes Williams' testimony on this at trial. From Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, quote, Williams recalled how he met Danny Hansford. I was getting out of my car in front of the house, and this fellow rode up on a bicycle. He said somebody told him I hired people to work on my workshop who had no experience. I said, well, that's true, but I only hire people who are capable of learning things. Danny started off by stripping the finishes off of furniture, end quote. There is a problem with this scenario, one bigger than the image of Danny riding a Schwinn. But in order to elucidate that problem, we need to look at Jim Williams a bit closer. Jim Williams came from a nice middle-class family from a working-class Georgia town. But Jim craved the life of old Georgia money. He made his money in antiques and restoration, including historic buildings, not just the furniture. And Jim cultivated his status by being able to make connections for Georgia's boy Beloy. Jim's respectable side shown in his love for Georgia's past, particularly Savannah's past. Savannah, Georgia had not fared the aftermath of the Civil War well. The city did have a leg up on many other cities on the route of General Sherman's march to the sea. Sherman operated on a scorched earth policy, which meant the cities were burned to the ground. But the army under Sherman was starving and exhausted by the time they got to Savannah. To keep his troops from deserting, Sherman ordered Savannah to be safe from any destruction. Any soldier caught committing crimes of war would be shot. So Savannah's beautiful buildings were not burned to the ground. But economics still shifted, and people had to change where they lived to accommodate the change in employment. The beautiful homes in the city center were partitioned off to make apartments, 
Some homes became derelict and some were raised for new construction or parking areas. By the time Jim moved to Savannah in the early 1950s, the homes could be purchased dirt cheap. So Jim began to purchase those homes and he started to restore them back to a vision of glory. Jim's psyche probably lay in the cluster B disorders, but maybe not. The very best salesmen are often sociopaths, and Jim was a whiz at wheeling and dealing. He was also not above cutting corners and scamming people to get what he wanted, or thought he needed. This included taking in antiques for refurbishment, making a replica of that antique, giving the replica to the original customer, and then selling the real thing off to other customers willing to pay. Jim also liked to curry favor. He made it a habit to visit the bus station looking for young men who had relatively no place to go. He would offer them a place to stay and work in his antique restoration business, while carefully prying out of them what they would be willing to do to stay in Savannah. No one seems to want to call him a pimp, but that's really what it sounds like he was doing, so that's what I'm going to call him. Savannah had a fairly thriving gay underground, and Jim quickly came to know all of the players. He would facilitate a meeting between those young men and Savannah's patriarchy, at least those who were trying to keep their pederasty in the closet. Jim also used the services of such young men. Eventually, he became so entrenched in this society, he no longer needed to secret anyone from the bus station. He would just go straight to the red light district. It is just not plausible that Jim and Danny hadn't met by 1979, the time when Bardsley has Danny riding up to Jim and asking for work. Danny started trading sex by the time he was 14, so 1974. Jim had been in Savannah for 20 years by that point. The scene where Danny rides up and asks for work seems like Jim trying to maintain some level of respectability. Danny working for Jim gives him a credible reason for him to regularly be at Jim's house. And Jim gets to appear to be helping a lost youth. At some point, Danny moves in. People say he moves in, but it's really unclear whether it's a full move in or just stays there a lot. Danny doesn't really seem to be the steady type, but Jim says he, Jim, develops hypoglycemia and needs someone to be there to watch over him just in case. So he tells everyone that Danny acts as that person. Danny gets a place to stay, money, and he gets someone to care about him. It sounds weird, but Danny seemed to need to hurt the one who loves him most. He figuratively lost his mother as that one who loves him most, so Jim becomes the replacement. Now, Kirkland really pushes the mentor helping the lost soul narrative. He calls it the saint and the orphan, and presents this motif as Williams trying to project himself as Father James saving the orphan nanny. If you aren't sensing the sarcasm from Kirkland, trust me, it is there. The thing is, I'm not convinced that this motif was only a cover. I mean, I don't believe it was the only reason that Williams kept Danny in his life, but I am suspicious that this might be one of the reasons. Jim had become what he had aspired to, one of Savannah's elites. He wasn't actually old money, but he finally walked in that world. 
Jim would hold these Christmas parties that were both the parties of the season. You were somebody to get an invite to these parties. The one party was for everyone and anyone on his list. The other party was just for the men. Both parties were extravagant and black tie. As far as I can tell, Jim would take these young men and Eliza Doolittle them, except he didn't fall in love with them. He would tog them up for his friends. I wonder how many of those young men had Jim's men-only Christmas party as their coming-out party. I'm pretty sure Jim would laugh at the subtle double entendre of that sentiment. I know that, in many ways, he was a high-class pimp, but I think he also enjoyed turning the lives of these boys around. I think he felt he was doing them a favor. Danny proved to be a big, like, really big challenge. In Jim Williams' twisted way, I think he really cared about Danny, and he really wanted to turn him into a swan. God, the mixed metaphors I'm using here. Again, I say, people are rarely ever one thing. Jim can be a bastard and still love somebody. This case is chock full of nuts, guys. And look that up if you don't know what that is. It's a thing. The people, the court, it's a proper bazaar in downtown Cairo. In the next episode, I will tell you about the crime, about William's revolving door stay in jail, the trial, and probably more of the characters that occupy space in this story. If you like what you've heard, yay, I have accomplished something. Do me a favor and rate the podcast. If you have a minute, write a review so other people can find IAR and they can also enjoy a listen. Come say hello on Insta, whatever the hell Twitter is called now, and on Patreon. I'm linking these in the show notes. And look, if you hate my squeaky voice and wish I had never been born, you may want to think about how you ended up still listening after a half hour. No, really, think about that. The Buzzcocks will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Set my emotions.